hope you have a Bible with you. We're going to study God's Word together. So if you would open up to the book of Romans, chapter 5. So just a heads up before we actually get reading this text, this is, um, this is heavy sledding. Romans 5, 12 through 21, it, it doesn't put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Uh, we're going to have to reach up and work for it a little bit this morning. I was even thinking of um, a game we used to play with our first dog, uh, who was a beagle. Her name was Bailey. And one of the things that we used to do is we would lock her in the, the room in the back of the house and we would go, the family would all go hide little treats, little bites of treats all around the living room and different places on chairs and under things. And then we would open that door and just like coming out of the floodgates, here comes Bailey. And she loved it. I mean, she was working for all this time, just smelling around everywhere she went and just tail wagging in all directions because she feels God's pleasure when she smells things, right? She loves to work to find things. It's like in her nature. And in a similar way, as a Christian, it's in your nature. You are wired by God to hunt for truth, even in hard places. Not just the easy stuff, the low-hanging fruit, but hard text, complicated text. There's something in you that should be... Through the Holy Spirit, your tail should be wagging, right? Because we got work to do. And so I hope in that sense, all our tails are wagging as we get to work here in Romans chapter 5. So if you would follow along, I'm going to read this passage beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, that is Adam, is a type of the coming one, that is Jesus. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then... As through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's heavy theology, but we need it. I remember hearing a pastor some years ago, and he was thanking God for his wife on a particular occasion in front of the church they had faced uh, ma major hardships in their family that year. Affliction had beset them as a family. And he was thanking God for his wife in front of his church. And here's, here's what he said to her on their anniversary. 
He said, you have been a steadying hand on my trembling shoulders. And I thought about that quote this week when I read Romans 5 because Romans 5 has a similar ministry in the life of the believer. It is a steadying hand on our trembling shoulders. The great lion of Princeton, J. Gresham Machen, a valiant defender of the faith through his life. And then he comes to the end of his life, really at the tender age of 55 years old, and he, he knows he's about to die, and he writes a letter to another world-renowned world theologian named John Murray, who was a close friend of his. And he writes to John Murray what would become his last words. And here's what he said to his friend John Murray when he was about to die. I'm so thankful Christ obeyed in my place. No hope without it. And in that sense, he was playing the same chord changes Paul was playing in Romans chapter 5. That's the same theme that's coming through in this text. There's a lot packed into this passage, so we got a lot of work to do. Let's dive right in. The passage unfolds in two stages. The first is this, sin runs deep. Sin runs deep. So let's back up and find our passage in the larger flow of Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you're not familiar with this letter to the Romans, Paul writes it, the Apostle Paul writes it to the church at Rome, believers in the church at Rome. And when you read the beginning and when you read the end, you get a sense of why the stuff is in the middle. You know, why is this massive volume, right? So Paul writes a lot shorter letters. Why is he writing this big, long one? Well, you read the beginning of the letter and the end of the letter, and you put those clues together and you find some things out. So read the beginning of the letter, and what do you find? You find that Paul's never met these people before. He's never been there in person before, but he's heard about their faith. Their faith is, is encouraging to him. Word on the street is they, they're living it out, and they love the Lord. And he says, I wanna, I've heard about it, but I want to come and see you. I want to come and be with you. I want to sit across the table. I want us to fellowship. I want us to be mutually encouraged by our common faith in Jesus Christ. And, but he, not only does he want to just share fellowship, he wants to partner for the sake of mission. So that's what he's going to get to at the end of his letter. He's going to say, look, the gospel's got to get further out. It's got to get to the ends of the earth. It's got to get to Spain, which was at world's end in their conception. And so he says, I want you to partner with me to get the gospel to world's end, to get the gospel to Spain. And so he says, in order to establish apostolic credibility with you, I'm going to give you my gospel. And that's what explains everything that's in the middle, which is why Paul, at that turning point, really the key moment in Romans that explains everything is when he says, this gospel, I'm not ashamed of it. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in this gospel, the righteousness of God is manifested or is revealed from faith to faith. For the just shall live by faith. And that becomes a kind of hermeneutical key for the whole book of Romans. It, it's an interpretive key that opens up the thread of the entire book of Romans. So we're going to walk through this very quickly together. Righteousness is the main thread running through Romans. So how does that develop? Just a quick 30,000 foot flyover of the entire book of Romans. Paul starts talking right there about righteousness lacking, the righteousness we lack. And he says, Jews and Gentiles lack righteousness. He said, we each have our own unique Jewish ways and unique Gentile ways of dishonoring God. But we both do it and because we both do it, we stand unrighteous in the sight of a holy God. And he says in chapter 3, verse 20, every mouth is shut 
before God the judge. Nobody has any excuse for the way that we've lived and we're toast because God is just and God is holy and we are not holy and we are not righteous. And then Paul moves from righteousness lacking to righteousness provided. In chapter 3, verse 21, he talks about the atonement. He talks about this big $3 word that Christians call propitiation. That is the act by which Jesus Christ averts the wrath of God by taking it on himself. So that everybody who hides in Jesus, your justice has already been satisfied in him and in his cross. He talks about propitiation. He says, when you put your trust in what Jesus has done, you are justified by faith and faith alone. So then he starts talking about justification by faith and not by works. And he moves through that. Then you get to chapter 5 where we were just this last week in verse 1 through 11. And Paul brings all that justification doctrine, all that atonement theology home to the hearts of believers to say, look at the hope we have now. Look at the rejoicing we can have now because of what God has done for us in Christ. And then we come to our text, which we'll come back to that, obviously, and dive into it in a moment. But at the end of our text, he starts to tip his hat towards something else. You see in verse 21, if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 21 where he talks about grace will reign through righteousness. So Romans 6 through 8 is righteousness reigning. So righteousness lacking, righteousness provided, and then three chapters of righteousness reigning. What the Christian life looks like is unfolded in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. In light of the work of the cross and in light of the endless power of the Holy Spirit, this is the Christian life. And then he comes to the end of chapter 8 and it is Niagara Falls. It is pouring grace out of the text of Scripture in Romans 8. He comes to the end, what theologians call the unbreakable golden chain of redemption. He says, your, your salvation is not plate glass. It is not fragile. It is titanium. It is invincible. It's, un, it's as unbreakable as the immutability of God himself. And then Paul anticipates that there are going to be Jewish Christians who are listening to him who say, unbreakable, why are the Jews apostate? Why have so many of us not embraced Messiah? The purpose of God seems to have been forfeit. And that's why Paul then transitions to righteousness vindicated. He demonstrates God's righteous character. He clarifies that Israel rejected God's way of making his people righteous. And then he says God's not out of options. God is going to bring all Israel. God is going to bring the Gentiles and he's going to bring them to Messiah. And then he transitions to the last final section of Romans is righteousness manifested in the church. A people who are Chapter 12, not conformed to the patterns of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of their minds and the transformation of God's work among his people. And we're serving one another and growing in grace and rooted in love and reaching with the gospel. That's what you see all the way to the end of the letter. I think it's worth taking time to get that overview so we can see these aren't just individual disconnected pericopes or disconnected sections of, of this epistle. It all hangs together. Paul is leading them somewhere. And the somewhere that he's leading them, when we come back to our passage, so here we are, verse 12 through 21, back in our passage. Before Paul gets to chapter 6, he's got a little bit of work to do right here in our text. Because in chapter 6, he's going to say, you have a, there's a new sheriff in town. You are no longer under the mastery of sin. Sin's dominion is over for you. And now you're under the reign of grace. You're under the dominion of grace. 
And, and so he's going to tell them why. Why is that set of circumstances, how does that obtain? And Paul answers that question in our text by saying, the reason you're no longer under sin's domination is because you're no longer in Adam. Now you're in Christ. We're out of the old fallen template. There's a new Adam who's come and he's opened up a new way to be human, a resurrected way to be human. So this is in your notes if you're taking notes. Human history is ultimately a story of two kings, King Adam and King Jesus. These are two sort of federal heads. These are two um, leaders of, of humanity. Look at verse 12 again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through, note those words, one Man, Now that phrase, he's going to use that over and over. He's going to toggle back and forth. And that phrase, one man is going to refer to Adam. And then one man is going to refer to Jesus. One man is going to refer to the first Adam. One man is going to refer to the last Adam. So look at it, verse 19, just an example. Just as through, there's the phrase, the one man's disobedience, that would be Adam. Just as through Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. So one man, dismal. One man, glory, right? Opening up new possibility. He does the same thing in verse 15. You see it there? One man, one man. Verse 17, one man, one man, one man, one man. So the takeaway is, is this. It's one of the core statements of Christian belief. And it's this. Adam's sin brought death, guilt, and condemnation into the world. Adam's sin brought death, guilt, and condemnation into the world. The, the Bible um, doesn't have an overly optimistic view of human nature. That's understating it. So even earlier in the book of Romans itself, you get this, this snapshot of God's inspired word and what it looks like, the, the fallen race of men, what it looks like. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one on the planet who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt or worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. I, I read that text with all of its none righteous, none understands, no one who does what is good, and I think toddlers. It's a great illustration, right? I mean, you don't have to teach toddlers how to disobey. They come by it honestly. Dear old dad, Adam, passes this attribute all the way down the human line, all the way down to each person. We come into the world, and if there are sticks next to the lampstand, I want to grab them. And if I'm told not to hit the lampstand, the only thing I want to hit in this room is the lampstand, right? It's sort of this unwritten rule in human nature. It's not just toddlers. You grow up and it continues to just grow and blossom in your life, my, my life. I think about my, my middle school years. If I had the power to pronounce curses upon people, you know, like when, when Jesus walks by the, the fruitless fig tree and he says, a curse be upon you, and it just, you know, just withers up right there. If I had that ability in middle school, people would just be dropping like flies. It's just like a pox be upon you and you and you and you down the hall, right? Just people just be dropping left and right. 
And it's not just a middle school thing all the way up to the present day. So if, if one of my kids is in a school class and the, the teacher or the professor embarrasses them in front of the class, I, I, I'm looking for imprecatory psalms. I am uh, I'm praying, just let, let his table become a snare, let his loins be continually shaken. You know, this is, it's in scripture, it's right here in the text. I'm just praying your word right back to you. Right, because look, there are, who was it, Gary Smalley who wrote Love Languages, the five love languages. I'm grateful Gary Smalley was so optimistic about my nature that he would say, these are my only five love languages. I can do more things besides just one quality time. Vengeance is a love language for me, right? We, we are a mess, and we come by it honestly. Dear old dad Adam passes this junk all the way down the human family to us. It finds us. Um, you know, there are serious implications to this passage. It's not a laughing matter. Romans 5 is serious implications wrapped up in what he's saying. Again, look at those words. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people. It's not just merely talking about physical death. He's not just talking about physical death because God wasn't just talking about physical death when he told Adam, you can do everything, this whole place, I made it for your enjoyment. It's just one thing, don't touch this tree over here. That's gonna be a, a test of your trust in me that I'm good, so don't go near this one thing, right? Before Adam bit the fruit, there were no prisons. There were no divorce courts. There were no broken vows and broken laws. There were no prisons. There was no cancer. There were no abortions, no genocide, no racism, no sex trafficking. There were no depression. There was no cutting. There was no shame. It's hard for us to imagine that, right? Because when Adam rebelled against God, he opened up Pandora's box and there was no way to close it. And in comes pouring into the world every heartache, everything that's made people cry and angry and unrighteous. It just came pouring into the cosmos. John Mayer is an artist that we enjoy because we like listening to the blues. And I don't think he purports to be a Christian unless there's something that's happened that I'm unaware of. But nonetheless, he, he reflects on the very kinds of things that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5, he asks a question in one of his songs. He says, basically, he's asking the question, is it possible for the struggles of parents not to be passed on to their children? Here's what he says. How much of my mother has my mother left in me? How much of my love will be insane to some degree? And what about this feeling that I'm never good enough? Will it wash out in the water or is it always in the blood? And then he writes another verse about his dad's penchant for self-destruction. Then he writes another verse about his brothers. How much like my brothers do my brothers want to be? And just saying, well, why can't we get this right? What is this, this unbroken cycle in humanity that is so wrecked? How can we get out of it? Is basically, I was asking the question, will water do it? Is there a way? Is there a fountain somewhere? Is there some place I can wash this junk off me so it doesn't keep passing from one generation to the another. Look, unfortunately, our connection to Adam is not a superficial connection. Water won't do the trick. The sin is deeper down. The demons are deeper down. Theologian Philip Ryken said, when our first parents bit the forbidden fruit, the juice ran down our chins. It had an effect on the entire 
race of humanity. Look, the, the Christian worldview, it is, it is neither utopian nor is it cynical. It's not utopian because we don't, we don't airbrush the evil that's in the world or the evil that we see in our own lives and in our own hearts. And by the same token, it's not cynical because we know evil won't have the last word. Why? Because there's a way out of Adam. There's a new Adam. There's a new way to be human. There's a resurrection life. If we can somehow get out of this category of in Adam and get into this category of in Christ, a whole new set of outcomes obtains. It's an awesome thing, this gospel. This whole passage hangs on the biblical idea of a representative who acts on behalf of the many. Not just on his own behalf, but acts on behalf of the many. Verse 19. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Look, if you're allergic to someone acting on your behalf for the highest stakes imaginable, verse 12 is a problem. Verse 19 is a problem as well. Look, if we push back against this concept of representation because I need my individual freedom and that's inherently right and, and just, let's just think about a couple of things. First, factor in this reality that Adam was a great representative for you and me. He was the perfect representative for you and me. How do we know? Because God picked him. The all-wise, good, kind God who loves us and created us in his image, he picked Adam as our representative. In other words, God didn't hang the fate of humanity on some goofball in the garden. He picked Adam on purpose. He set him up to succeed. He gave him one law. Just don't eat this one thing. Everything else, you can enjoy it. Adam doesn't come with a heart that's bent away from God. It's possible for him to do this thing. Adam gets to walk in the cool of the garden with God himself. He is set up to succeed. He was our best chance at getting this right. He comes onto the scene fully mature. He's not a toddler with the drumsticks next to the lampshade. He is not uh, a, an adolescent with raging hormones. Right? He, he, his frontal lobe is working on day one. He's mature. He was the best shot we had. I heard one pastor helpfully illustrate it this way. He said, imagine that you're at um, an NBA basketball game for the Golden State Warriors. And one of the ushers comes up to you and says, you've been chosen for the halftime entertainment. And they bring you out onto the court and the announcer announces your name. Everybody goes nuts and says, we're going to have some fun with this contestant or whatever. And says, here's what you're going to do. So they hand you a basketball. They put you at the top of the key at three-point line. And now here you're going to have to use your imagination because this wouldn't happen this way. But they say, you sink the shot, you walk away with $10 million. You miss the shot, you spend the rest of your life in a supermax prison. How are you feeling about your odds? Right? The, the stakes couldn't be higher. I feel terrible. But then the announcer says, surprise twist ending, and he brings Steph Curry out onto the court. And he says, so here's, here's another option for you. Steph Curry, the, one of the greatest three-ball shooters in NBA history. You can take the shot and live with the outcome, or he can take the shot 
and you live with that outcome. Now I feel a lot better, <laughs> right? I mean, the stress isn't off because he's not a robot. He could actually miss this thing. But it's a whole new prospect if Steph Curry is holding the ball. If he hits the shot, we'd be writing songs about the glory of representation. And if he misses the shot, we hate representation. That's kind of the tension we feel in Romans chapter 5, I think. Which leads to the second thing. If we're allergic to someone acting on our behalf for the highest stakes imaginable, guess what we don't like? The gospel. <laughs> Look, that thing cuts both ways. Look at verse 18. So then... As through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. I hate federal headship and representation. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. I love representation. You see that, right? For just as through the one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous Here's this gospel truth that comes pouring in through this text is point number one, sin runs deep. Point number two, grace runs deeper. Sin runs deep, but grace runs deeper. So after identifying one or two common threads between Adam and Jesus, Paul goes on to spend verse 15 through verse 21 saying, look, I know there were a couple of similarities, but Adam and Christ couldn't be more different. The outcomes, the effects of their work are polar opposites. How so? Number one, the current of grace is stronger. The current of grace is stronger than the current of sin and death. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. So now we're working on contrast side of the equation. If by one man's trespass the many died... How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, note that language, overflowed to the many. And he uses that word again, overflowed, abounded. He uses the phrase, how much more, again, in verse 17. In other words, the point that's coming home to us in this text is Adam's sin brought a curse in the world. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, his sinless life and his substitutionary death will not only break the curse, it will make every sad thing come untrue. It will open the world. It will overwhelm all of the cosmos. It will overwhelm all of creation in a torrent of uninterrupted joy. Unsullied innocence, unimaginable glory comes pouring into the world through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Look, there are many here today, Christians here today, who if you sat down with them and they told you their story, they would, they would say, you know, there was a time in my life where I thought I had outrun the reach of God's grace. I thought the, the arm of mercy is long, but it's not long enough to reach me, not way out here. I've gone too far this time. I got myself in too deep and there's no way out now. And then they'd go on and say, but how wrong I was. Grace reached further than I ever imagined grace could reach. The great 17th century pastor, John Bunyan, he used to love to talk to souls and members of his congregation who were in a state of doubt. And here's one of the things he said to those in a state of doubt. It becomes thee 
when you cannot perceive that God is within the reach of your arm, to believe that you are within the reach of his. For it is long and none knows how long. No one has ever tested the full reach of the grace of God because he can find us wherever we are. Friend, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him and live. Find in his cross total sufficiency for all your sins. Find it today. Find it now. The current of grace is stronger. The obstacle to grace was larger. Verse 16. The gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. So one trespass led to condemnation and judgment. Pastor and author Greg Gilbert, I think he speaks with great clarity on this point. He says, if justice cried out for condemnation after one trespass, imagine how loud justice was crying after a few thousand years of humans piling up acts of rebellion against God. And then he says, salvation in Christ overcame a mountain of trespasses. Friend, your, your guilt and your sin is no match for God's grace. The two are utterly incommensurate, utterly disproportionate. The current of grace is stronger. The obstacle to grace was larger and the reign of grace is longer. The reign of grace is longer. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, it had its time so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Many of the um, early church fathers in the early centuries of Christianity, they would love to, to talk about the symmetry between the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam yielded to temptation in a garden. The last Adam conquered temptation in a garden. The first Adam blamed his bride. The last Adam took the blame for his bride. And then my favorite, at a tree, the first Adam lost everything. On a tree, the last Adam won it all back and infinitely more. But what, what effect should this truth have on a church? Sometimes pastors are asked the question, what's your vision? Pastor, what's your vision? In a lot of places in Western culture, especially in larger churches, that vision is supposed to be this really slick, actionable, sounds like it was endorsed by the corporate world and then just slathered in Bible verses. Um, it's a really clean list. I think about a text like what the Apostle Paul says to his son in the faith about his own story. He says, Timothy, let me, let me tell you my story. Here's what he wrote. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. I read that text and I think, whatever makes our church sound like that, that's my vision for our church. 
Can we sound that amazed by the gospel? So much glory, so much boldness and mission, so much joy in Christ, so much endurance is downstream of getting Romans 5, getting 1 Timothy 1. These truths of the gospel create humility and hope and joy and boldness. Look, I want Romans 5 to convince you of something the church has gotten for years. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what you brought to the party, the sin for which you must be forgiven through Jesus. <laughs> and I want that truth, Romans 5 kinds of truths, to ring in our ears, to fire up our worship, to deepen gospel friendship, to sustain gospel mission to the ends of the earth. I want us to, to push all our chips to the Jesus square, to the grace square, and see what happens next.